0: Oh yeah, what's up Kyle, this is Griffin here Um, I'm a host of the Doe and Elk Productions podcast Some pretty good shit man, I'm running right now, I'm fucking sweating It's a fucking beautiful day to be alive on this Monday I got work in a couple hours, I work at a shitty mall But I love fucking doing this podcast And I really want to fucking help some people Thank you man, I love your shit man Keep doing what you're doing, rock and roll Rock and roll, Griffin. Uh, I love getting these voice memos from you. Puts a smile on my face. You guys are funny. If you want to send me one, you can record it on your phone, keep it under a minute, and email it to info at kyle.surf. Don't overthink it. Just let me know who you are, some details about your life, and I'd love to play it on the show. I'm going to read you a page out of a book that profoundly influenced my life, and it is the book in the July box of goodies service that i offer so once a month i will send you a book that i love as well as a potent tincture of santa cruz medicinals cbd santa cruz medicinals has supported this podcast from day one their founder cajoled me to start the show and we've been friends ever since and they are pitching in um this cbd so if you want to get cbd once a month and a book um, head over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies. Great way to support the, the podcast and get more literature in your house and in your mind. All right, so this is a book called The War of Art, and this is um, a page out of it. Most of us have two lives the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. Have you ever brought home a treadmill and let it gather dust in the attic?" Ever quit a diet, a course of yoga, a meditation practice? Have you ever bailed out on a call to embark on your spiritual practice, dedicate yourself to a humanitarian calling, commit your life to the service of others? Have you ever wanted to be a mother, a doctor, an advocate for the weak and the helpless, to run for office, crusade for the planet, campaign for world peace, or to preserve the environment? Late at night... Have you experienced a vision of the person you might become, the work you could accomplish, the realized being you were meant to be? Are you a writer who doesn't write, a painter who doesn't paint, an entrepreneur who never starts a venture? Then you know what resistance is. Once again, that was a page of out of the book, The War of Art. And if you want to get that book and some Santa Cruz Medicinals, CBD, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies, or just click the link below. I want to send a huge thank you out to the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation was the primary funder of the Motherfucker Awards uh, with Chris Ryan and I, and they are now sponsoring this podcast. They support organizations all around the world and the one that i get to highlight in this ad is save the waves save the waves protects coastal ecosystems all around the world um and they've also supported my work for a very long time actually when i was 18 and doing a a very early project of mine i wanted to make a documentary and they stuck their neck out for me and uh, agreed to be my fiscal sponsor. And for those of you who don't know what a fiscal sponsor is, it basically allows tax-deductible donations to go through a set-up 501c3. So if you ever want to start a project, but you don't want to start your own nonprofit, which I would not recommend you do unless you have multiple employees, you can get a fiscal sponsor from a legit nonprofit, and they get the money, and then they cut you a check. Um, So Save the Waves was very generous to do that, took a chance on a kid who had zero track record, and um, I'm an ambassador for them. So here is a message from their director, Nick.
1: Hey, Kyle, this is Nick from Save the Waves calling in here. Uh, As you know, Save the Waves is dedicated to protecting surf ecosystems around the world. And uh, we have some pretty good news from the place where you learned how to surf in Santa Cruz Cowles beach for over 10 years. It's, uh, routinely been classified as California's dirtiest beach. And thanks to our efforts along with our partners at the city County of Santa Cruz, we've been able to bring the bacteria and contamination levels way, way down. And this year, finally, it has been, uh, taken off the list of heal the Bay. So our efforts are actually bearing fruit and, uh, It's nice to have some good news to share every now and again amidst the horrendous news that seems to be surrounding us on a daily basis. So thank you for your support as an ambassador. And we're also really thankful for the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting us. And if people want to learn more about Save the Waves, uh, go to savethewaves.org.
0: Horrible news? I have no idea what you're referring to, Nick. All it is out here is rainbows and dandelions and unicorns and ISIS. Remember when we were afraid of ISIS? Wow, how retro. All right, this episode of the podcast is with Jamie Kilstein. Jamie is an American writer, radio host, and stand-up comic. He made his debut television appearance on Conan and has been seen on the Joe Rogan Experience, MSNBC's Up with Chris Hayes, Showtime, and BBC America. Kilstein hosts the podcast, A Fuck Ups Guy to self-help this is a little bit dated because we recorded this a couple months back so apologies and it was a fun and meandering conversation so please without further preamble give it up for jamie kilstein Let's do it. All right, let's right. let's let's get it going. I was uh, looking on your Instagram this morning. You're up at 4 a.m. I sure was. <laughs> well done. I was up it's- at 5. I thought I was doing good. Then I saw your Instagram. I was like, damn it.
2: Uh, I'm like a sadder, smaller Jocko. Um, where (laughs) I'll wake up at four and instead of like lifting kettlebells, uh, I'll just like take a walk outside and just kind of self-talk myself. Like, we're going to be okay. We got this. You're going to be okay. You're good, man. You're good. And then, uh, yeah. But, uh, then I started like working and meditating and, and, and doing, doing healthy stuff. But I didn't know usually my go time. Usually I didn't know I like. who
0: Jocko was uh, for a while. And the first introduction I had to him was just his Instagram page. Yep. And he has like a million followers and it's just photos of watches. Sure is. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> is he like some kind of watch king? Yeah, and yeah. it's all like 4 a.m. four eleven a.m. For those, it's of like people a who Batman
2: villain. We're like, those <laughs> yeah. are the clues he leaves at the crime scene.
0: For those people who don't know, Jocko is a Navy SEAL who wakes up at 4 a.m. and does these badass workouts and then takes photos of the time that he got up and started working out.
2: Dude, I wonder – remind me. We can circle back to this, but I want to talk to you about masculinity and politics. Sure. Should I I just do it now? I should probably just do it now.
0: Yeah, I woke up at 5 a.m. and went on a turkey hunt and talked about – um social issues with my housemate the whole time. So
2: okay. I'm I'm all in it, man. You're, you're you're jazz. Great. Um what if I just turned it and I'm like, these turkeys, uh the angry <laughs> vegan in me. Uh okay. So when we started texting about the podcast, I texted you some version of what I've been texting different podcasts I've done. Um, which is I'm so excited to do your podcast. I'm so excited to do like podcasts like yours. And I've been starting to do music podcasts and uh, places where the focus is not politics. And, but but I always phrase it in some, like I just want to get the fuck away from politics and like all of that shit, blah, 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 blah. And then I was thinking about, I was trying to remember where I heard you and it was on our mutual friend, Aaron Alexander's podcast. Uh, not a political podcast. And you started talking about, I mean, one, we have a mutual friend in Matt Taibbi and Abby Martin. Uh, I saw she was on your show. And so some like political people, but I heard you talking about politics. And that was actually when I went and looked up your shit because you weren't talking about it in this tribalized, overly, Um, I either have to be overly woke or overly center right or overly, you know, Trump or whatever. You were just talking about how people oftentimes the majority of people are getting fucked over by the same people and you were calling them out. And it wasn't you weren't talking about certain candidates. You weren't talking about certain Twitter tribes or anything like that. And I was like, right, that's what I love doing. I do still love doing that. And then I was listening to this interview with Killer Mike. Uh, I was listening to this old Run the Jewels interview this morning and hearing him. And again, he gets shit from the left and the right. Right. Like he was a big Bernie guy. But then he's also come out um, about being pro guns in the black community. So he's upset the woke people and he's upset conservatives. But he was just speaking authentically like as himself. And I was like, right, this is I can still talk about politics. I do still deeply care about these issues. I just got so fucking sick and tired of waking up on Twitter every day, seeing what my friends were outraged about, joining the hashtag, trying to come up with a funny joke, and then like basking in my retweets. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, I commend you on what you do. We don't have to talk about politics. Thank you. It was, it was, it was this moment, this more, it was like this, like kind of life. Not life-changing, but it was this really important quarantine moment that I had where I was like, right, I don't have to distance myself. I just have to distance myself from the douchebags, and I'm still allowed to care about the issues and talk about them through comedy or whatever. But that doesn't mean I need to, like, attack everyone who disagrees with me uh, like I used to do. If that
0: you I and I come from very different places, in our engagement with politics because I grew up as a surfer. I wanted to be a pro surfer when I was a kid and most of my friends were surfers. And then it was through this experience of traveling around the world where I learned about a lot of these different social issues. And then certain people came into my life at various times, you know, like reading Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins and learning okay. about um, these various economic policies that the U.S. uses to impact these other countries that I was visiting to go surfing. Right. You know, and then someone like Matt Taibbi came into my life, and I was like, oh, this guy's a hilarious writer, and he's talking about these issues not from left-right perspective, but more from rich-poor perspective. Right. Um, and... It was really through that that I started learning more and more about this stuff and and just thought, wow, this is really interesting. But I never had to placate a base. Yes. And that's what,
2: man, that's why I wish so hard that I just stayed with just being a stand up instead of a political guy. Because when you're just a stand up, it's just about being honest and authentic. And you can have views that seem like they're contradicting each other and you're just trying to figure shit out, right? Like whenever I did interviews, Because I made most of my living overseas because I started becoming political like right after 9-11. And I was doing stand-up in New York, and people did not want to hear about that. And so I was going over – I mean, shit. I did a show. I opened for Christopher Hitchens at the Sydney Opera House and then got back to New York the next week and couldn't get booked at like the diviest, shittiest comedy club. So I would go overseas, make a bunch of money not a bunch, but make like my rent, come home until I run out of that money and then like go back to Australia to be like, what's up with America (laughs) or whatever. But so whenever I would do these interviews, people would always ask if comedically, you know, I looked up to Bill Hicks or George Carlin and I thought about it and I I didn't. Like I grew up on kind of the filthy New York, uh, David Tell, Patrice O'Neill type comics. But Bill Hicks taught me about politics. So, he didn't really influence my comedic style, but kind of like you with Taibi, it was someone speaking my language because I, I remember having this phase and I'm sure some of your listeners or you can relate where you know, I I think my first political issue that I really cared about was like gay rights and same-sex marriage back when that, it wasn't even a fucking possibility and I was like this is bullshit, but I was a high school dropout, I didn't know much about history or the world. And then when I kind of figured out, oh, okay, I guess I'm a lefty. I guess I'm a liberal. I was like, well, I'll just read some Noam Chomsky. And like, I picked up Noam Chomsky after not knowing anything, not reading a history book or whatever. And I was like, who's East Timor? Like, I just didn't know what he was talking about. It's but like then- thinking
0: of a surfboard and being like, I got this coach. His name was Kelly Slater. It turns out he was good. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. He's starting me in a place called the ocean. Um, yeah. yeah, and so I fucking... But I read Al Franken's book and Bill Hicks and like I learned about politics through comedy and I was like, right, this is like a language I understand. And then I think Taibbi brought that to a whole nother generation now where the reason I texted you and I was like, oh, I'm done with politics. It was so fascinating because under Bush, I became really good friends. I became friends with Taibbi and I became really good friends with Glenn Greenwald who, if anyone doesn't know, he was like the journalist who found Edward Snowden. Um, and everyone loved him. Oh, oh, the left loved him so much. Um, and then when Obama became president, who I have like mad respect for Obama, they seem like the best family in the world. But like my Conan set, I talked about drone strikes under Obama, like drone strikes are drone strikes, right? And so... Greenwald and Taibbi would criticize Obama and now under Trump um, when the left is doing something dumb like nominating Biden over Bernie or uh, uh, the, the whole like infatuation with Russia Gate, where Trump is doing so many bad things that you should be calling him out on uh, coming up with this weird, fictitious TV movie type. Scandal or whatever. Uh, no matter how you feel about it, the second they went against the sort of establishment line, suddenly all these lefties that love them were just like, fuck those guys. And the reason I say it, and I hope your audience is still with me, but the reason I say it isn't to like bring up like Bernie versus Biden or Trump. It's to say that we should live in a world where if we're going to talk about politics, our principles stay the same no matter who's in office. So if you know, if George Bush did something you didn't like and Obama does that something, you should call out Obama on it and be like, Hey, man, like you're better than this. I want you to not do this. Um, and then conversely, if Trump says something that you kind of agree with, whatever it is. And I think the problem with Twitter and these people, the, the sort of professional punditry class is that all they want to do is just start shit on Twitter and they're not actually out in the streets. They're not really doing anything. I think you as a fucking surfer with like the awards or going on someone like Aaron Alexander's podcast, a health podcast and talking about class war. I was like, who is this guy talking about (laughs) class war? Like was so important. And I actually think that that does way more good than when I was just screaming at people in the ether to show people that I was like woke or right or, or whatever. Anyway,
0: Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. Um, I also was lucky in another sense because I – one of the first social issues that I um, became engaged with was the banking system and a lot of the corruption within it. So that is one issue that is not highly polarized at all. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Um, It's just too complicated for most people to really dig into. So – I came at it very early on just trying to understand how the banking system works. And then I, I maybe from a kind of just earnest and and childlike place was like, oh, well, maybe all issues should be like this. We should just figure out how it works and, and make it better.
2: And-, Dude, and this is like the – um And uh, uh, hello, new people who don't know me. I promise I'm funny. Um, But this is so important where, like, I've had really amazing conversations recently with Republicans, with famous Republicans who had blocked me on Twitter. And I noticed that when when you don't come at them, just guns blazing right? Like the, the, shooting the word Nazi out of your mouth, like a cartoon character. Um, you find out – like I don't agree with the extremes on both sides are the same or – what I noticed is like the the conversations I would have with Republicans about Bernie Sanders, for example, is they'd be like, he's a socialist. It's it's Mao, Maoism. And you'd be like, cool, cool. We don't have to talk about that. But you have to admit that the problems he's calling out – even if you don't agree with his solutions, there's something there, right? And they would be like, yeah, because a lot of times it's these Republican areas, these highly religious areas, these really poor, uh, working class white areas that are getting hit the hardest. They're being fucked over, uh, if not worse than, you know, where the liberal coastal elites are, are being screwed over. And what I noticed was when you could have a conversation with what I would approach Republicans like this, And this sounds hyperbolic, but they were just so happy I wasn't calling them a Nazi that we would have really good conversations. Uh, Conversely, I remember after the school shooting in Texas, I saw this Republican dude uh, on Twitter who works for Glenn Beck and he posted these school shootings like something has to be done. He's a huge second amendment guy, huge NRA guy. He goes, something has to be done with background checks, mental health. And homeboy even used the words white supremacy. And I was like, Oh oh my God. So I retweeted him and I was like, Hey, here's my conservative friend. He wants to do something about guns. I'm still pretty liberal. I want to do something about guns. Let's start a conversation. And he retweeted it. And the Republicans who jumped on the thread We're like, yeah, too many kids are dying. Like it was really sweet. And then like liberals who followed me, including like a kind of friend of mine who unfollowed me because of this. He goes, well, then why does he work for Glenn Beck? Then why do you like vote for Trump? And it's like, there's nothing we can do about that, dude. And this is sort of the problem with cancel culture is I'm glad that racist and creepy guys and stuff are being called out, but we're getting to a point online as a society where we're just not rooting for redemption anymore. If I I I am a liberal, I and I saw that guy and I go, I don't care who he voted for. In this moment right now, he's saying we need to do something about gun violence. Like, fuck, yes, I'm going to jump all over that instead of on Twitter. You're just trained to see it as his opportunity to like strike or be like, gotcha, told you. And then nothing's going to get done. It's just a bunch of assholes yelling at each other on social media and that's it
0: yeah luckily i'm not really on twitter yeah and you know one one place where people can come great? together instagram's great yeah oh, I it's love just it.
2: motivational quotes and dogs <laughs> i started i wasn't big on instagram uh I'm, I'm big on twitter and i'm not on twitter anymore and i'm just making these dumb Videos that I'm having so much fun with on Instagram, and everyone's like, "Good job, keep going!" And I'm like, "What is this place? It's like fucking magic compared <laughs> to Twitter.
0: Yeah, but again, I think that the the place that I come from continuously is yeah. more around um, things that I like to do. And then politics come comes second. So the way that I, I relate that. to a lot a lot of people um, is through the surfing community, is through the hunting community, is through people who really enjoy these outdoor spaces. And there's a lot of crossover between politics in terms of people who love outdoor spaces. Yeah. And I've just been very lucky in in the way that I'm I don't get get held up as a. Um, I guess, a, 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 an intellectual or a political journalist. So I tend to come at stories and issues from like, Hey, we both love the outdoors. Let's figure out the best way to protect it. And and right. as I said, like it comes from a, a, maybe like a, an earnest and in some ways childlike place. Um, but I find that I'm able to connect with that. Most people want to connect on that human to human basis more than they do in real life that's no, how they I love want that. to connect
2: and, and and also i think one of the important things to do like so all right so when you're talking about the environment is if you're talking to like a conservative who wants to get really tribal about it being able to open up and being like no 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 the democrats and the republicans have equally fucked up the planet um you know what i mean the people in office well liberals are more about you know regulation and setting but we haven't done nearly as much as we should, because there are many Democratic politicians that are still in, still get money uh, from oil companies, from these giant corporations, right? Um, yeah. you know, I noticed that I'm vegan, but Rob Wolf, who's the big paleo guy, is one of like, he's a really close friend of mine. And we had this great conversation. And I remember when he went on Rogan's once all these, like the Rogan people who didn't like me were like, you got to take out that fucking vegan, go after Jamie. And I found Rob's email and I emailed him and I go, Hey, people are saying we should be enemies, but like, I thought your interview was pretty dope. And like, I hate factory farms. We should be friends. And we've been friends for years and there's so much we can bond over where both of us he wants clean meat uh i want less animals being tortured i want no animals being tortured so we're like where do we align we'll fuck factory farms right yeah uh, which
0: of course is the yeah we'll, we'll there's a lot the you coming at me coming at me sideways like a crab jamie i, I like know. it i know there's <laughs> so much i like it well a few thoughts on that um that you might be able to relate to. Like one thing that I think about a lot is um the this idea in stoicism around knowing the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change. Yeah. Um and focusing on the things that you can change, which is why like a lot of the the, the stuff that I We'll talk about more confidently is yeah. campaign finance reform, which at its core really is in, in a lot of ways. It's a stoic belief. It's like know what you can change. You're not going to be be able to change any of this other shit until we fix this first issue. And that right?
1: should have
2: been a bipartisan issue, too. That was McCain and Feingold, Russ Feingold, the only guy who voted against the Patriot Act. Right. Um, and they were just trying to get the corrupt people on both sides to be like, yeah. oh, we got to do something about this.
0: Yeah. So, so focusing on what you can, can change versus what you can't. And then secondly, like one thing that I I think about a lot is like, what ideas are actually my own versus what incentives have been put in place on social media to get us to be shouting at each other? Because everyone knows now it's kind of common knowledge that Facebook will, uh, will make their algorithm, you know, have sh- stories show up s- that make you more mad, right? Yeah. Which then begs the question like if you step back just one little bit, was that idea really my own or was it just implanted in me? Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, to take a a hard a hard left. Um I this sounds like the cliché words of a man who took a lot of mushrooms on Valentine's day. Cause he was alone for the first time and, uh, had a life changing experience. Um, but when you said the simple issues, I've really just been focusing on like love, like it, it, it's the older you get and, or the more psychedelics you take, you realize that those cliches are kind of the key to life. But we just ignore them and treat them as like empty platitudes. But leading with love, the Ram Dass, I am loving awareness, you know, uh, uh, being present, uh, connecting with nature, uh, other human beings, all, all that stuff is so much more important than scoring political points on a hashtag. And, you know, I've joked about this before, but when I was the loudest yelling at people who disagreed with me on Twitter, I – wasn't really doing anything in real life. Like I was pretty active in like with Occupy Wall Street. But after that, like once I got kind of successful, I was just sort of like laying back and kicking it. Like I have joked about this before, but like my girlfriend at the time could have been like, Hey Jamie, your mom's on the phone. And I'd be like, tell her I can't talk. I'm tweeting about feminism (laughs) where I was just, I was ignoring the people in my real life. And then when I stepped away and probably actually started to have a life that more resembled yours, um, sans the hunting. But when I was, when I just started focusing on jujitsu and I disappeared and I removed myself from social media and I started teaching jujitsu, this is in Los Angeles. Um, and I was having like really healthy relationships and friendships and I was calling my family more And I wasn't yelling on Twitter when I thought, I mean, I legitimately thought I was making a difference and I was riling the troops and stuff. I realized that I helped so many more people just through fucking jujitsu. And much like you with the surfers, what's so fascinating, especially like I'm in Arizona right now, is when I hang out and talk with jujitsu people, they might consider themselves more conservative than me or... but, but. We all agree on pretty much everything, and if we don't, we can talk about it. Like there's something about the camaraderie with fighters where you probably have that camaraderie with surfers where at the very least, like we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt first, where on Twitter, it's like you make one misstep and you're canceled. And that's it. Um, but I feel like, yeah, when you can start with that camaraderie of like, hey, we're all surfers or, hey, we all love the outdoors or we're all hunters or we're all jujitsu players or whatever, you can actually have conversations and people ask questions, which that doesn't happen on Twitter. I remember when I used to go on MSNBC, producers would be confused because I would ask another panelist a question instead of just cuz what you're supposed to do and an MSNBC host told me this is you're supposed to do a politician's do which is you have your talking points like if my talking point is uh you should be able to get legal abortions at Whole Foods solid talking point um and then you ask me a question about you know well uh, we need to talk about this affair uh, that you had, uh, before the campaign started. And I can go, you know what, we could talk about the affair, but what the people really want to hear is when they can get abortions for free at whole food or whatever. And so it's that like pivoting that just completely ignoring and just shouting your talking points. Cause the majority of people who go on these talk shows are paid consultants or are, and so they just have to get their shit out. And then, by the way, they're all fucking yucking it up backstage, and like the Republicans and Democrats, and then they yell at each other uh, online, and then we all suffer.
0: Yeah. So, what was your psychedelic experience like?
2: Oh my god, uh, I feel like I'm
0: I'm catching you at a very interesting point in your life.
2: It it could not. be. I looked on your
0: Instagram. It was like four a.m. hikes. I got Michael Pollan's new book, How to Change Your Mind. I'm like, uh-oh, this uh-oh. guy's going through some stuff. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> he, He's so, not very certain anymore. This is interesting.
2: Yeah. So like, um, okay, cool. So you can tell your people when you promote this podcast, be like, hey, if you want to hear about relationship stuff and no politics, 23 minutes and 40 seconds in, here we go. Uh, I've been codependent my entire life. And this is something that... I'm finally wrestling with because to me, I always thought codependence meant that you just didn't want to be without a girlfriend or boyfriend, which it is. That's like part of it. And that's also me. Um, and, and that part of the codependence comes from me being a fucking loser in high school and not kissing a girl till I was like 18 and then... Uh, the first girl I had sex with cheated on me and then the second girl cheated on me. So even now I turned 38 in two weeks and, uh, it's only been the last couple of years. I mean, usually when I meet a girl, especially if it's a girl that's much prettier than me and we sleep together and it's great, I'm like, cool, you should move in with me like right away. And I told myself it's cause I'm this romantic and like, I love the idea of like, yeah, when you know, you know, but I (laughs) have been realizing recently, that I probably just think they're going to leave me. And I'm like, well, if they move in, it's just putting more obstacles in the way. Like they (laughs) may want to leave me, but like, do they want to hire a mover? Probably not, right? Like, do you want to box up all these books? No. And, And so I would move so fucking fast. Now, the other side to codependence, which adult Jamie has realized, is that I would also kind of do whatever these women wanted to do And that includes, you know, not doing jujitsu, not waking up early, not meditating, not whatever, not because they were these horrible women who were like, don't meditate pussy, but because like they didn't want to do it. And again, I didn't want them to leave me. So on the other side of codependence is resentment. So like these fights that you might have where. Let's say it's the third day you haven't done jujitsu because I've been hanging out with my girlfriend. And I go, hey, I should really do jujitsu just for like my mental health tonight. And she goes, come on, stay with me. And I go, okay. And I think I'm staying because I'm such a good boyfriend. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And then like an hour in, maybe she's on her phone or maybe I don't think she's like, grateful, which you should never be looking for that. You should never do something looking for like a thank you or whatever. You should just do it. But this is how I operated for so long. Then I would start to get pissy and resentful. Where I'm like, well, I should have gone to fucking jujitsu. And it's like, well, yeah, then I should have gone to fucking jujitsu. And that's my fault. That's on me. That's not on her. And so there were times that I stopped doing comedy. There were times that all this stuff, because I just wanted those girls to like me. And so I move out of L.A. with a girl that I – like three months in, uh, as I do, and I'm in nature for the first time in my life, and I'm starting to kind of discover myself and figure out who I am. And I get mushrooms because I'm like, we should do mushrooms together, but like the relationship, it just felt like – it felt like we were just really nice for each other.
0: You know what so I mean? So wait, when was this?
2: This was this year. So we – I moved out of L.A. in June. And then we broke up in December.
0: So you'd Uh, never spent much time in nature before that?
2: No. I mean I grew up in Jersey. When I was a kid, I would like smoke weed and just like hang out in the woods all day like a kid. But then uh, my adult life, I lived in New York and I lived in Los Angeles. So I would like occasionally go hiking in Griffith Park. With Moby, so the the hikes weren't challenging, if you know what I mean. Um, and like, uh, he's the best, but yeah, we would just like fucking walk around Griffith Park. But I wouldn't, uh, nothing really challenging, nothing. This is the first time I've been like barefoot in grass, uh, so, and I'm Hawaiian, you know, like when I was a kid, we would just go to Hawaii all the time because that's where my mom's from, and that was all. I
0: can tell you, pronounced Hawaii correct,
2: dude. When Obama didn't do it and Obama said Hawaii, I'm like, we're fucked. Because- <laughs> Every time I say Hawaii to a girl, I'm like, oh, they're gonna think this is cool. And they're like, Are you having a stroke? And they just don't. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. I appreciate it. Actually, my uh, my mom, I'm the only one of my siblings without a Hawaiian middle name. And so for my birthday, we're gonna get on a Zoom call with my siblings. And like, I really want to learn more about the Hawaiian culture. And my mom's gonna like kind of rename me and give me like a Hawaiian middle name. So I'm like, big year is what I'm saying. You were right.
0: And What's so your middle name? Big year. Getting a new middle name. Hoorah. Oh, I know. Well, yeah, my
2: sister's is Malia. Uh, my brother's, it's like, uh, Kiyoki Kalani. Um, and mine's fucking Alexander. Uh, there's no meaning behind it. I feel like they just were like, A's, let's just knock this out. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm very excited. They found one. Uh, it's beautiful. Um, so anyway, the codependent, move here. Yeah, you're right. First time in nature, which, I mean, that alone, you can't put it up with like a psychedelic experience, but that's when I started to be like, oh, am I spiritual? Am I like more connected to the universe and not just uh, a bitter, jaded New York atheist, whatever? Um, So that's where like things started to kind of like, oh boy, and i realized that i should probably get out of this relationship and to be honest i was just so sick of dating sites in la and like sleeping with influencer like just it was just like it wasn't i i didn't have any i didn't have any nice like conversations when i was just trying dating sites in la and then i met this girl and she was so nice and she was sort of you know she was raised by conservative Christians in Texas. And she told me I'd be a good dad and no one ever told me I'd be a good dad. And I was just like, holy shit. And so, yeah, we moved to, you know, outside of Tucson, like mountain area. And we broke up and it was just the nicest, most wonderful, saddest breakup I've ever had because we both just knew it wasn't right. And we both grew from the relationship, and uh, yeah, it's a lot sadder to be like, "I love you," I'm probably never going to see you again, as opposed to like, "Get out," you know. And so we break up, and I I, I tell myself, okay, I'm going to be single for like the first time in my life because I would just jump to relationships. And Valentine's Day's coming up. I still have these mushrooms on paper, doing a. Doing psychedelics for the first time since I was a kid, in an apartment that used to have me, my cat, and my girlfriend, and now just has me because my cat died uh, the same week that my girlfriend left, like a fucking country song. And which, uh, <laughs> by the way, when that happens, I've had relationships. I don't know if you've done this. Have you ever had a breakup where you're more upset that you're gonna like miss their dog than them? and you're sobbing over the dog is just a me thing i've been sobbing (laughs) over dogs and then the girls have come up and been like you're going to be okay like we're going to be okay we'll still talk and you have to pretend you're crying about them and not that you're never going to see like their dog again all right yeah or
0: that you need to like find a new grocery store or something like shit we can't shop there anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. yeah. they had
2: such sweet discounts um and yeah pretty much is that with animals and so i was devastated over my cat um, but the breakup was really good. And I mean, literally a day after she left, I was like, yep, this is the right thing. I'm going to be alone and not just alone, but like, I don't have my friends. I'm not in LA. I'm not in New York. Um, I don't really have like a jujitsu home base yet. So it's literally just me. And I decided symbolically on Valentine's Day that I would, the day that I would be so sad that if you're single, you're just, you know, tweeting about how sad it is and how, you know, the, society and hallmark and romantic Valentine's
0: Day is weird uh being single it's I, I don't think that people really. really recognize until they go through a relationship and then they break up just how much pressure that uh holiday holds well and how dude. no one likes it no like yeah. no one like if you're a, a, having Valentine's Day as and you and you have a cu- and you're in a couple's relationship yeah you know, yep you it the expectations are so high that it's never going to be a ten out of ten. Even if you do your very best, it's going to be a seven out of ten. Yeah, but sure if you seven. wake up and you're single or you just came out of a breakup or something, you're at like a negative three.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, not me. Not if you have mushrooms. I have to plug in my computer. You have a uh, ten out of ten, uh, yeah. which is what I did. But you're right. And by the way, I like I interviewed. Uh, I interviewed Whitney Miller um, for my podcast. I haven't aired it yet, but I interviewed her yesterday and not just valentine's day there's a stigma you know because her and aubrey marcus were in like an open relationship and there's a stigma with that obviously but there's also a stigma with uh being single especially as you get older where it's this kind of like people will do the same thing they'll project on you if you're in an open relationship because you go oh i'm in an open relationship and them instead of asking questions automatically in their brain go like, you're not going to fuck my wife. And it's like, no, I'm not to fuck your wife. Like, calm down, stop yelling at people. Uh, and then with, with being single too, a lot of times you'll get that projection, you know, where they're like, well, we have to do something about that. Like, well, I have a, I have a terribly sad friend that I can hook you up with. And you're like, Jesus Christ, everybody, like, I'm going to be Okay. And so, uh, sorry, I'm trying to figure out like the best way to do this.
0: You're, you're moving around a lot. Yeah, man. It it sounds like you're, uh, you've kind of come into a moment in life where you're exploring these different worlds. And one theme that I've found with people who are you know even if they're really high level at the thing that they do and they're well balanced they yeah. also are engaged in some other completely different world that allows perspective and you know this this new perspective into the world that they were holding too closely like you know that yeah. quote anything you hold too tightly will destroy you yeah i feel like that's you like you're loosening your grip on this twitter world this like the the uber left world and then just by doing something as simple as like going in nature you're like wait why was that such a profound experience it's because you've removed yourself from that world for even just a little bit and
2: yeah nature
0: and psychedelics coupled can just blow those paradigms apart
2: Dude, you're you're a hundred percent right. That it, it, it it's such a game changer, and I'm so glad I'm talking to you because it's easy just to say, "Oh, it was psychedelics or whatever." But we call right. this
0: podcast uh, therapy sessions with Kyle. So, oh, I love it. Oh, this yeah. is a, dude, every podcast I do, it
2: ends with people being like, "Are you good?" Um, <laughs> <but> the uh, <laughs> the yeah, I never realized until now how much even before the psychedelics, nature was playing just as stronger role, just as important as a role. And that's also been a problem with me that psychedelics kind of busted open where that grabbing onto things, it wasn't just the Twitter world. It was also when I was just doing jujitsu, I was suddenly super healthy, training twice a day, eating really clean, uh, blah, blah, blah. Then my first show back at the comedy store, I'm like, doing shot. I hadn't like drank in years. I'm like doing shots. I'm taking all the free weed because there's some weed sponsor guy back there and they were trying to get their shit to Rogan who was backstage. And like, so I'm like, I'm smoking weed. Not only that, I start walking to my car and I'm like, Oh, am I depressed again? Like, do I need to be depressed? Cause I'm like a comic, like all of these attributes that I thought had to do with, comedy and that I, I'm still going through that. Right. So it would be like, well, am I a comedy guy or a jujitsu guy? And then I'd stop doing comedy and I'd start training more. And suddenly I'm eating clean again and I'm not like smoking as much and all this stuff. And same with like music. Like, am I a musician or am I a comedy person? And it's like, you can do all the things, but I think that I, I still have that need for like, a tribe, I think. So it's like, am I a weed guy? Am I a jujitsu guy? Am I a podcast guy? Am I a music guy? Am I the codependent guy? Am I the sad, depressed guy? And instead of just fucking letting go and just being.
0: That was a good point that you just made about all the attributes that are associated with a certain activity that have nothing to do with that activity, like the depressed comic thing so many people think that they need to be depressed to be funny or surfers think that they need to be assholes to be good surfers. Like is that you, a it, surfer thing?
2: I always thought it was like a stoner that th- th- I always had the like Hawaiian hang loose stoner thing.
0: Yeah, but there's a big supply and demand issue in the sport of surfing. There's too many people and not enough waves. So there ends up being this hierarchy, which I think on certain levels is really healthy, similar to, probably jujitsu i don't do martial arts but i know that there is a hierarchy in there and certain people who have been in longer they're more experienced they get more respect i think that's great and similarly there is that with surfing but a lot of guys they never travel they don't have anything else going on and they just hold on to their spot so tightly that they're just ready to explode at at any mistake that a beginner might make um and Then they start to kind of see themselves as that person. And they think that they need to be assholes to enjoy the sport of surfing. A lot of times these guys aren't even very good surfers, which is just hilarious. Like you, you can do a sport for your entire life. And if you're focused on the wrong stuff, if you're not actually focused on the craft of the sport, you can remain pretty bad at it but yeah. you have adopted all of the rest of those cultural attributes that you think you need to adopt.
2: I love that where it's just like, well, I'm a mediocre surfer, but I'm a great asshole. So I guess I, ne-. well, that's like people who are like, I'm going to become a, I'm going to be, I'm a, I'm a writer. And you're like, cool. What have you written? And they're like, well, I mean, like I'm an alcoholic, like that's <laughs> right. That's right. What right. Hemingway did. Right. He was just a uh, drunk. And I, you know, I, I've done that with comedy before where it's just like, yeah, I'm depressed or whatever. But I mean that's something that's really important about Rogan is it's like, okay, here's like the most successful comic and he's healthy and he talks about that and you know he can he can smoke weed, but it it's not like it doesn't define who he is and blah 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 blah.
0: Um The thing also- that I love about when when I see someone in whatever world that they're in, and Rogan's included in this, is when they make it cool to try hard at something. I love it. Yeah. That means so much. And I think that the world is just it, – it's its really infested with this corrosive idea that if you try hard at something, then you're not cool. Well, it's just um, a fear of
2: failure. It's just like it, – in comedy, I call it like ironic that detachment where it's the people who are kind of like – they get up on stage and they pretend like they don't want to be there. They're like, oh, it's it, – it, whatever, man. Like they're like reading their notebook and shit. And it's like, oh, you – because – if you do that and then you bomb, you get to go, well, I wasn't even trying. Whereas like like my Conan set, which I am not allowed back on that show, but I am like stomping my foot. I'm sweating. And it's like, yeah, if, if, if this – if no one laughs, this is uncomfortable. You know what I mean? But it's how I felt. I, there was a musician who I heard talk about this once. I forget who it was, but they were talking about some of these like more like hipster bands that make it to SNL. Uh, get to play saturday night live and they like look like they don't care and it's like bro you're on saturday night live you can act you can be happy about it like it and, and not
0: only that picture yourself at 80 90 years old how much would you pay to be back at this situation right, right now yes what would yeah. you pay to yeah. be on stage as a 30 something year old you know telling some jokes with friends or you know to be on saturday night live as a band like what's, what's that number? That's, it's probably going to be a pretty high number if you look back at it retrospectively.
2: Yeah. Do you think in a weird way, because you're friends with a lot of health guys. And so you, you know, probably got a bunch of emails looking for like hacks and like biohacks and mental hacks and shit like that. Do you think in a weird way that people think, whether it's being an asshole surfer, being a depressed comic, being an alcoholic writer That it almost feels like a hack to them, where they're like, "Well, this is the way." Like, as because you were saying, like a lot of those assholes are mediocre, right? Um, Because they're focused on
0: the wrong stuff.
2: Yeah, as opposed to okay, so this is cool. You'll dig this as an athlete. So my coach uh, is this guy named Marcelo Garcia, who's known as like the goat, like the best of all time in jujitsu.
0: He's the guy who trained Josh Waiteskin.
2: Yes, do you know Josh?
0: I am a huge fan of him. I've never met him in person, but I read The Art of Learning when I was yeah. 17 and it wildly shifted the course of my life.
2: Yeah, so I was there when Josh got his black belt. Wow. The, which was Marcelo's first black belt that he ever gave. And so, yeah, so that was my- If teacher. you ever
0: run into Josh Waitskin, tell that guy he changed my life. I 100% will. I hear that a lot.
2: I I I, I didn't know how mysterious he was. I was like, oh, it's just like, this guy uh but i'm like i didn't know shit about chess but so Marcelo, when you meet him uh
0: you're First, probably just, just real quick for people who don't know josh waitskin wrote a book oh, called yeah. the art the art of learning he was this chess chess protege um who then deconstructed learning to become one of the best um push hands was it uh tai chi a, tai chi push hands martial arts uh, martial artists in the world um, yeah so great guy.
2: bobby fisher was based off of him yep yeah. um, is it, like my go-to line when people don't know who he is. And so Marcelo, you're probably in better shape than Marcelo. He's like he's my height. he looks like a a, a, a dad um, Brazilian dude and biggest smile in the world. Again, the best in the world. There could be a class of a hundred people, and before every class, I've never been to any gym like this. He goes around and he shakes everyone's hand. Like it's not a traditional school. We don't bow. We don't call him fucking sensei. He's Marcelo. We call Marcelo. Help! I can't do it. And there was his interview with him once when he was at like the height. He was like taking out UFC guys and these like ultra heavyweights, and I mean, people that were undefeated. Marcelo was just schooling everybody. And like Jiu Jitsu Magazine or Gracie Magazine, some place was interviewing him, and they go, "What makes you the best?" And when you hear like a UFC fighter interviewed, people you know,
0: ask me that all the time, and I never know how to answer. They're like, "Kyle, what makes you the best?" I'm just, what makes you oh, the best?
2: journalist? And probably my
0: humility. I don't know. I my always, I always,
2: eyes? I always, I always go with you. Yeah, I would, I would say your eyes. That's actually what I. That, that's where I was going with that.
0: My jawline, and, it intimidates people.
2: Yeah. Well, t- take it down. I was with you with the eyes. Uh, <laughs> very beautiful eyes. Um, so he goes, If you hear a fighter interviewed, they, you know, if they're going to be humble, they'll say, Oh, I have the best team in the world or I have the best coach in the world. But for the most part, it's like, I'm faster, I'm stronger, blah, 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 blah. And Marcelo very earnestly just goes, I love jujitsu more. And that's how he knew he could beat them. Because he knew that he loved jujitsu more than the other guy. And that's such a beautiful – such a beautiful concept where it's I'm going to be the best musician in the world or rapper or comedian or whatever, not because I'm better than everyone, but because I love the art so fucking much. Like how – beautiful is that there was this guy i don't know if you heard him on rogan but we became really good friends named ragunath capo and he was uh in this really big hardcore punk band like they were huge i think uh on the lower east side new york and then he went off to become a monk and he's a monk he became a monk he went to india for however long and he had this line where he said um he said this on rogan show where he said i realized that i was playing music to be god not for god And same deal, this beautiful thing. Like you shouldn't be playing music to be worshiped. You shouldn't be doing jujitsu because you have fucking dad issues. Like find the thing you love and do it so passionately. And oftentimes that will lead you to becoming great. Um, as opposed to the people who are like, uh, I want to start a podcast. And it's like, great. What do you want to talk about? They're like, well, I just want to like get high and like dick around with my friends. You're like, oh, you don't actually want a podcast. You just want to like, be able to get paid to smoke pot, um, as opposed to the kid who's like, "Well, I have this idea that I can't, I can't get rid of. It's just in my brain. I wake up thinking about it, right?" Or with music, I get as much joy playing music as I do before this interview. I just like walked laps outside and listened to Run the Jewels, and I am bobbing my head like I am part of Run the Jewels because it just hits me so hard, and so. Whatever you're putting yourself in, that really is the trick. That is the hack. It's like you don't have to be an asshole if you're a surfer. You just have to fucking love surfing for, for surfing.
0: Yeah, I wonder. This is, I love that concept. And I think that it's um, very true that the more closely you can hold that thing, inevitably, the more success you'll have with it. If you can keep that relationship with your craft super personal everything else comes from it i wonder though if conversely the more love you hold for your craft the more annoying it is when you see people who don't i love podcasting like i've been doing this podcast for more than four years and when i started no one was listening and i just realized how much i love this dynamic of interviewing someone like long form conversation. Holy shit. Neither of us know where this conversation is going to go next. We don't even know what thought we're going to have next, but we're still going to go. There's just endless options. And a podcast can go so poorly as we've both experienced (laughs) where like you get up from it and you feel like you're going to vomit. You're like, oh my God, that was just bad. And you beat yourself up over it for for days. Like if I do a bad podcast, I will beat myself up over it for days. Oh brilliant. And if I do a and if I do a
2: good one for 15 years, just I can make this much easier for you. Uh just say the audio file got corrupted and then hold
0: on. (laughs) Yeah. But even still, like on the personal level, you're like, oh, why did I ask that question? Yeah. Like have you ever asked a question that's too personal too soon and the person locks up? And it just, you can tell the the energy does not flow for the rest of the conversation. So I love, but if you do a good podcast, it's but- like a nice present with a perfect bow on it, you know, yeah. and, and there's, it feels like a product that people can share. And it's just beautiful. Like my relationship with a good question, when someone asks a perfect question is like almost sexual. Yeah, I love yeah, it that yeah. much. For sure. But then when I see someone who, who isn't respecting the platform and isn't trying to get better at the craft of podcasting, I feel it on a physical level. Like I, I just hate that, that they are not respecting that craft and, and they don't, they're not trying to get better at it. Well, so I, won- then- I wonder if like, if you have that love for something that it becomes more annoying when, when you see people who don't.
2: I think it just depends on what you do with it. So if, me, like if you text me and you're like, have you heard this fucking podcast? I just have to like get this off my chest. And I'm like, oh yeah, that guy is awful. And you're like, great. I felt crazy. I didn't know if I was just being jealous. And then you're like, peace. And then you go and work on your podcast. I think that's fine. If you let it fucking consume you, then I think, well, that's where the problem is. Um, with anything, right? It's, It's the internet commenter syndrome, which obviously you are not and would not like to be compared to where you see these people who are just lashing out so viciously, like I'll get comments sometimes and I'm like, are you trying to avenge your slain parents and you think I did this? Like it's (laughs) so insane to have a stranger say stuff like this. But oftentimes if you actually like read the comments a little further, like the third or fourth comment that they're arguing with someone about it. They'll go like, well, why don't I have a podcast? And you're like, there it is. That's where this all comes from. You want a podcast. And what you would tell that person is, well, if you spent time creating a podcast and being willing to fail and fall on your ass, which we all do, instead of bitching about everything that is wrong in the podcast world… Right. It's the quote the the, the that, that old famous quote about the critic doesn't step inside the arena or whatever. Um, then you could actually probably live your dreams and make like dope art, but you're too afraid, so you're lashing out at other people. When Josh said- Waitskin
0: talks about this a lot, the difference between the man in the ring and the person in the stands. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And knowing the difference, knowing who's actually in the ring willing to get their ass kicked and get up and try it again and again, versus people that are just willing to oh, criticize totally. from the bleachers for their whole lives.
2: Cause that's everything by the way, that's surfing jujitsu comedy. I mean, the advice you give is probably the same advice I give, which is like, Oh, you're going to get murdered for a couple of years and you just have to like suck a little less every day comedy. They say it takes eight years to get your voice eight years, eight years of being bad, of performing in front of people. That's a fucking nightmare. And by the way, you're never guaranteed to, like, do good. Uh, oh, you're still 20 years. I saw Louis C.K. bomb at the height of his popularity in Ireland because they just put him before this, like, heartthrobby comedian. Um, very similar eyes and jawline issue. And he bombed in front of 800 people and walked backstage. It was the first day we met. and He was like, what, what happened? And I was like, you t- you're my, I look up to you. You fucking tell me what happened. And then the next day he got in front of his audience and he fucking slayed and we like hugged backstage. And now, you know, what happened, happened. Um, and then uh, let's not worry about the rest of that story. And so, but it was wild to still see someone at that level eat such shit, but you have to love this thing. If you want to make a living with the thing you love, That means the times you get your ass kicked are going to be way harder. Um, But the reward is so much more worth it. With that said, though, to get off my high horse, when you said conversely, I did think about this that the reason that, you know, I posted some like silly song this morning, but I love music infinitely more than comedy, infinitely. And it means so much to me. I've played drums since I was a kid, since I was like 12. All I wanted to do was be in a band. Um, the only reason I do I'm doing comedy is because I thought my high school jam band was going to continue on. We were doing we opened for the band that opened for Blues Traveler in the '90s, and I'm like, guys, we've made it. And senior year, I had already dropped out of high school. Senior year, I go, all right, guys, we should start talking about like merch and touring and like maybe we can open for this band like on the road and travel. And all of them were like, bro, we have to go to college. And I was like, what? the fuck is that dumb shit? What do you mean? We know what we want to do. We want to play music and all of them left and I don't sing really. And so I was like, well, I fucking don't know what to do anymore. Like that was my plan. And I liked comedy enough where I was like, well, it's like when you settle on a relationship, it was my relationship before I moved to Arizona. I was like, well, you won't hurt me. So fucking all right. You know, no one's going to leave me in comedy. So I did that. But to your point, I definitely get way more nervous and maybe it's just because I need to put the hours in, but I get way more nervous about putting out a song. That's why like the lyrics to that Snowden song are funny because I'm a comedy guy. So that's my crutch. That's my, Oh, you didn't like it. Well, it's a fucking joke song. Right. Even though like in my head, I love the melody so much. Like when I came up with that, I was like, oh, this hook's actually like really good. But I had to make it something funny because they care about music so much. And so sometimes you're right. It can put more pressure on you and it could stop it. You know, and, but also maybe it's just a thing you're meant to enjoy and love. Yeah, I really That's it too.
0: Yeah. Mind. You know, the uh, Latin root of the word amateur is amor, to love. No, it's a good one, right? That's a
2: really good one. Holy shit. That's every garage band, right?
0: Yeah. And, and I don't think I don't I'll get off my uh high horse as well because I don't think that I have a perfect relationship with learning either and my relationship even with surfing has gone through so many different iterations of like Holy starting just because that's what my friends did and it was a social activity for me to then being like I want to be a professional when I get older to then being like wow we get to ride waves that came from halfway around the world on a surfboard. What a trippy thing to be doing to to now like, wow, this is also a conduit to various social issues and ways to tell stories. And like, it's such a great metaphor. And so my relationship with this single activity has changed so much over the years. Um, And also my relationship with how hard I am on myself has changed. Like when I was younger and I, and I would have a bad surf session, I, I would just – it wasn't like I did bad. It was I, I am bad. Yep, me right? too. And uh, so, I, so maybe it's not that, that you love something so much and that makes you annoyed with people that don't take it seriously. Maybe it's just that you take yourself so seriously that anyone who isn't taking it seriously, you have a really hard time relating with.
2: Although, and now comes the conversation, look at us on our two tiny horses. Th- this comes the conversation with greatness because, so I was the same way. Um, if I got tapped out, I would like, I had a phase where I was hitting the mat and I was like, I don't want to be the hit the mat guy. Every time I had a bad show, I could have, I mean, I've done some cool shit with comedy, like standing ovations at music festivals. Like there was a year, it's only a year, there was a year where I was very good And, you know, I mean, Robin Williams became one of my closest friends because he came out to see me in San Francisco. Like I've got, if I actually look at my life, I can't be, it's the 80 year old thing you were saying. I can't be upset. You know, lots of shit has happened, but like the good stuff, it's like, whoa, you know, if I actually take inventory, it's insane. It seems unrealistic to me. You know, I recently, I finally like got rid of the screensaver of my old cat because it was too sad. So I replaced it with the equally sad, uh, me and Robin, the first night we met and I'll just look at it and be like, what the fuck? Sometimes. And then I'm like, right. And, uh, but anyway, so cool stuff's happened. But if I had one bad show, I would quit. Dude, I've quit comedy so many fucking times, so many times. It's ridiculous where I was just like, well, I'm garbage and there's so much imposter syndrome happening. Um, but to your frustration. So I wanted to like. Commiserate, same. And it was actually psychedelics that kind of broke that open. I'd never done comedy sketches before. I've never posted like music and stuff. The reason I did it is because I'm like, I'm just going to make the shit I love and just put it out there. And I'm having so much fucking fun. And it took quarantine and mushrooms and losing everything in a month to do it. But I'm doing it. And, you know, there are times... Where I go, fuck, I can't believe I turned 38 in two weeks. And I'm just discovering that I'm going to put out music or make sketches or discover my Hawaiian roots. And, like, I don't have time. And then I'm like, yeah, I do. I have so much time. Um, but I just watched this old on YouTube video where Complex Magazine was interviewing Kobe Bryant and Kendrick Lamar about greatness. And I was like, click. And this it was yesterday. And Kobe said that when he realized he was different, there was some game where it was like, you know, buzzer shot. He passes it to some guy, guy shoots it, guy misses it, and game ends. They lose, and everyone's like, all right, like good game. And Kobe's like flipping over fucking tables and is like furious. And the guy that missed the shot was like, hey, man, like we'll be good. Like, we'll get him next time. And he's like, no. And I don't want to get to that point, with, especially with art. I don't want to get to the point where I'm flipping over tables, but I want to get to the point where I can strive for perfection and be okay with something that I love. You know what I mean? I think, like, having that balance that – I say this in jiu-jitsu sometimes. You need a combination of, like, Woody Allen self-hate. And Kanye West swagger and combine those two things. Right. Like that attitude of Kobe's awesome. Combine that with like Ram Dass And that's where I want to be as an artist. You know, like I want to try to be the best and put out the best shit there is for sure. But I want to be doing it from like a Zen place of, of love because it's grounding me and making me happy and hopefully making other people happy. Um, But also thinking about the audience less, which it sounds like why you had success with this podcast, where you just fell in love with this form. You know, I was just uh, listening to this Rick Rubin interview as well, and he was like, "The audience should be the last thing you think about," and that kind of ties into the Marcelo. I'm doing it just because I love it, where I'm not even at a subconscious level doing it for other people. I'm doing it for me, and then.
0: I interviewed uh, Van Jones
2: once. You know who that is? Yeah, I met him one time in real time, but I never had him on the show. Thoughtful I really dude. To...
0: Started Green for All does a lot of work to get uh, black people out of prisons and into yep, green jobs. Got job, thrown right but... under the
2: fucking bus by the Obama administration.
0: Yeah, he was the environmental czar, and uh, I interviewed him once and asked him about public speaking because he's a very moving public speaker. And he Incredible. said, you need to love it enough so that when you're up there, it's great, but hate it enough that when it goes badly, it feels horrible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And right? I think that's like, that I don't think is a bad thing. I think that when you get in your head and you start comparing yourself to other people or being like, why is that fucking asshole I have a podcast or stuff like that? That's when it can start to get toxic. But A hundred percent. If I do a shitty interview, if I have a bad show, I mean, fuck, if I put out a little Instagram sketch that I'm like, this was so funny, and then it kind of tanks, I'll get pissed off or bummed out. Um, But I just had, uh, I just interviewed Kyle Kingsbury. Are you friends with Kyle? I'm very good
0: friends with Kyle. Yeah. He's
2: the best human in the world.
0: Yeah. Um, I've been on a hunting trip with Kyle and I've been out, uh, hung out with him a ton. I took uh, him surfing here in Santa Cruz a couple months back.
2: Okay, great. I think fig- I, I figured that he's one of my favorite people. He actually gave me uh, my intention at the end of this. Uh, we've like we've gone back and forth on each
0: other's podcasts, but uh, I just did we didn't of- really get to the psychedelic story. I want to. Oh, yeah. We we almost made it in, and then we took a a hard left tangent Classic psychedelic
2: conversation. Uh, (laughs) These guys are taking
0: way too much psychedelics. I did mushrooms again last
2: week, and I did it right after my interview with Kyle, and I had him give me an intention, uh, which is amazing. Uh, But he was saying in this interview that he had this moment where he started to get pissed off because his podcast numbers were down. And he was like, well, I thought I've been doing this really good job, blah, blah, blah. And we were talking about mindfulness and psychedelics, uh, as you do with Kyle. And he just had this moment to be like, wait, why do I do the podcast? I do the podcast because I love it. Would I do the podcast if no one listened? Of course I would, because I love it. And so then he got out of his head. Cut two. he starts talking to his other podcast buddies. And they're like, yo, everyone's numbers are down because no one's commuting right now. So people are like, because like... I thought that when he said that, I was like, oh, fuck, Jesus Christ, because my numbers are down. And so my jujitsu podcast, the numbers are up, but that's because everyone is fucking suicidal, not doing jujitsu. But my podcast numbers are down because, yeah, a lot of people listen to it during commuting. But his point was there is no reason to get angry about you. You can want to always want to make like adjustments and fix things and shit like this. But like, let's say you're surfing. Are you going to get more out of if you have a bad day? fucking throwing your board, getting pissed off, going and getting drunk that night or getting pissed off, taking a deep breath, centering yourself and be like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? What are the, the course corrections I could make? You
0: know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's a fool's game also just to get, just to look at your audience like numbers. It's really easy to do because you look at your audience or, and even on Instagram, you look at your audience there and you're like, okay, the numbers are up, the numbers are down. But, um, Like I, I sometimes think about like change, you know, how many people have you deeply affected in your life? Right. And, um, I have, I don't know, but I do know like one story that, that has stuck with me my whole fucking life is I once did this little video on, um, cold plunging and like morning routine. I'm lucky enough to live pretty close to the beach. So I run down and, Right at dawn, uh, we'll jump in the ocean, Santa Cruz, it's fucking frigid, and you, know, you oh swim God. out to the kelp beds, and you you come in, you feel like Wolverine, it's like an insane yeah. feeling, right? Sun's Dude, coming up over out the Santa Cruz it. mountains and the redwoods, you're just like, oh. yeah, life is good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did this video, right, and uh, one day I'm uh, hanging out in downtown, and Santa Cruz, there's Huge drug problem, got a ton of math. Uh, and it's like these, there are these weird different worlds within the town. A lot of people see it as like a Santa Cruz surf hippie culture, but then there's also like this deeply conservative side, deep like up in the mountains, like dudes oh. that just like listen to Hank Williams and right. will ride dirt bikes. And then there's like the homeless community, you know, as well. And uh, this dude walks up to me and he's like, Hey, what's up, Kyle? And I look at him, and he's this haggard dude. And I, I look more close to him, and I went to elementary school with him. Ooh. And I was like, whoa, hey, how are you? And he's like, man, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, Hey, dude, I watched that cold plunge video you made, and I've been cold plunging every morning since I saw that. Like, right on, bro. It's like changed my life. Whoa. <laughs> like, this is – as good as it gets That's- right here. The, just this one, one-to-one, one right? Yeah. And, and so I, I think that it's really easy to make yourself feel smaller if you're like, oh, my numbers are down. I'm not reaching as many people. But to think about just the one-to-one, like yeah. what it feels like to impact one person's life um, can be a good reframe.
2: So I'm so glad you said this. So I've never told this story. It's happened very recently. This story is going to start inspirational, get to a, oh Jesus Christ, Jamie, and then it'll end inspirational. I'll bring it, I'll bring it, I'll bring it home. I'm ready. Um. So with that, and yeah, for people listening, you know, if anyone is like, well, it's easy for you guys to say you're whatever. I mean, number one, I've lost everything um, multiple times. And, you know, but, if, and you've worked your fucking ass off. We've both worked our ass off. But the thinking about who you affect it actually can benefit you financially. Like if people are like, I don't care. I'm not going to be like a fucking hippie. Like I need to make money. I need to pay the bills because, so here's what happened with me. So I was doing this political show and it was cool. I, I, what I was trying to do with this sort of new version of me was, you know, I'll talk to people I agree with. I'll talk to people I disagree with. After I went on Rogan, I will say, a lot of like conservatives wanted me to. I would have made a shitload of money if I went the like, fuck liberals, fuck the woke community, fuck women. If I wrote a book that was like, women are liars, I would have made like a bazillion dollars, but I would have killed myself because I would have been miserable.
0: So and you so, were super far left progressive. I just want to give people a small backstory. Um, yeah. Calling people out on Twitter, uh, part of the Woke Brigade. You had an article written about you about very obtuse sexual allegations. Um, Yeah,
2: it's so funny. Even the word sexual allegations. I walked around with a lot of shame. This is the the first time I was – I mean this year is really the first year. This happened so long ago that I don't want to sound flippant about it. Um, But yeah, I – uh, it was literally just like consensual relationships and we broke up. Uh, the worst thing I did was I cheated, which I uh, deeply regret.
0: Um, but this but, was the height of the me too movement. So you got no, kicked no, off the radio. It. it was before
2: not to be a hipster, uh, not to be like, I <laughs> I was before. <laughs> Louis T. No, it, the, the story was, it was nothing that comedians haven't talked about on stage. It was consensual one night stands. That girl said, I actually treated them very well. Um, and then it was this, Big dumb affair I had, but because I was such a loud male feminist, you know, whatever calling people out, it was a fun story for people to be like, ha, fuck that guy. Where it still is derailing my life is when you read the article, which by the way, most of the stuff in the article isn't even true, but even in the article, it's like, oh, he didn't grab anyone. He wasn't fucking drunk people. He wasn't praying. All- he wasn't sending dick pics, nothing. Um, but the headlines are like, sexual misconduct. And it's like, that sounds like I grabbed a woman. Like they're really misleading, horrible or like abuse allegations. It said, um, which there aren't any when you, when you, when, when you read it, like breaking up with someone and they get sad, isn't abuse or else I've been abused for most of my adult life. Um, so, Yeah. So that's kind of like the, the backstory. So I'm doing this political podcast and I'm like, I don't want to go, you know, I circle back around and I'm like, fuck, I guess I really am liberal because that gains me nothing monetarily. You know, it's right wing shows that want me on to like trash liberals, um, which I don't really want to do. But I was like, I'm just going to, Be who I am. So I did the show and I would talk to conservatives sometimes and try to find common ground, still holding my liberal uh, point of view. I would interview liberals. You know, it, it was good. It was fine. It was a fine show. But the more I would have like conservatives on, the more people wanted me to have like more conservative guests. And my audience is very mixed. There'll be like, you know, a 50 year old conservative dude and like a gay punk 17 year old, but I, where I really got those emails were like the ones that were like, you changed my life or you saved my life. Or when I talked about my depression or I talked about anxiety or mental health and stuff like that. And so, you know, thousands of people listen to the podcast, started a Patreon. Patreon probably only has about 150 people. So that's like, let's say $1,500 a month. It's like rent now that I don't live in LA not a, not a lot by any means like my old podcast when i was screaming at people made like $13,000 a month with no advertisements patreon but, uh it, we actually did a patreon model before patreon because this was probably like again like 10 years ago so we had like little paypal buttons and tiers so it was the patreon model we just made it and so uh i asked the patreon i go hey if i talked more about mental health would you guys be cool with that because you guys are like the hardcores. They're like, oh yeah, we don't really care about politics, but we just figured you had to do that or you like it. That's the stuff we like the most. But then uh, talking to some of my very famous lefty friends, they're like, dude, primary year, this is the year the podcast blow up, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, fuck, like I got it. I got to do it. And I was doing a daily political podcast and I wasn't lashing out at people on Twitter, but it was still like clickbait, you know, headlines, and so I have this girl on, this woman on, and she, you know, we start out the conversation like, hey, we disagree on some stuff, but we're finding some common ground, blah, blah, blah. Look, there's stuff about the trans issue that I'm like unsure of or we can debate about, but I would certainly never like bully a trans person. And I recognize that the suicide rate of the trans community is horrific, no matter how you feel about anything. It's like, all right, if there's a community where like suicide is that high, we should probably do something to help. And this girl starts like being like, trans people aren't fucking real. They're an abominable, like the most hateful shit I've ever heard. And I was like, holy fuck that interview. Like au- we have audio issues. It was like that. I'm like, I can't air this. And I tried to be like, it, it was a disaster. And I was like, what do I fucking do? So that day on Facebook. I got a message from someone who goes, hey, I just want you to know I was at like my trans therapy and I listened to this po- this podcast episode you did about being yourself and all this stuff and it made me feel less alone. And I start crying. I'm like, okay, there's my sign from the universe. I'm going to be a fucking man. I'm not going to say the audio didn't work. I'm going to call this girl and be like, this is why I'm not airing it. So I call her and she goes, you can edit that part out. And I got, nah, dude, it was like fucked up. And, uh, and I do this podcast the next day and I go, the show is changing. I'm, it's just going to be a fucking comedy show. We're going to talk about mental health. I'm going to interview artists. I love actors that I love musicians that I love. We're going to talk about failure, all this stuff. Maybe I'm going to lose thousands of people. I did. Um, not talk about politics, but this is the way it's going to be. And I tell this story about the trans person who reached out and I'm like choking up on the show. And, uh, the next day she wrote me and she goes, Hey, I appreciate it so much. I'm looking forward to the new podcast. Just so you know, I'm not trans. I guess it was like some, tra- like the word trans was just, it's a kind of therapy that has nothing to do with gender. <laughs> like <laughs> trans or therapy." And I had to be like, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it was someone else. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. With that said, I've made more money. I lost thousands of listeners, but I've actually made more money doing this show because I've started doing some like uh, coaching stuff that I've always wanted to do that I never thought I could do. And all of the stand-up gigs that I lost this summer – I made all that money back because pre-COVID I just was like, I'm going to do the show that I love and I'm going to do it for maybe it's literally just going to be for 150 people, which for someone who used to have a huge fucking podcast is a bummer. Um, But like financially, livelihood wise, heart wise, soul wise, we're fine. We're kicking, you know? And when this show does grow, which it will fucking grow, it's going to be all these people who are here for the right reasons and who actually are getting something positive out of it instead of people who just want to hear you shit all over political candidates so they can jerk themselves off and feel superior.
0: Yeah, they like you for you. That's I, I think that a lot of people just – talk. You know, they, they don't see the nuances in being well-known and how different – like you know lots of famous people. I'm sure you can attest the fact that different kinds of fame are very different. Um, yes. I'll tell this story out only because Chris has told this story on his podcast yeah, a bunch, but I, I think that it um, kind of elucidates your point. Um, so, a mutual friend of of both Chris Ryan and and mine is a guy named Simon Rex, who's a oh. rapper, Dirt Nasty, yeah, yeah, yeah. very thoughtful guy, super spiritual. You can he, he can wax philosophical for days. He's just a completely different person than his. Dirt nasty, you know. Suck my dick, riding my Ferrari. uh, Dude, I got that vibe,
2: and I feel like I wanted to reach out to him like months ago, and I just forgot about it. Yeah, you you should.
0: He's he's incredibly thoughtful. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. loves psychedelics. Loves to learn. Very earnest. And um, Chris and he were at a coffee shop in LA and there's a woman who's i believe she was a barista and she's she's like oh my gosh you're chris ryan i've read your book sex at dawn i watch i listen to your podcast intentionally speaking and chris is like oh that's so great and they have this conversation and uh she's they're like oh my gosh you know i'd love to hang out sometime they exchange numbers and, and and simon is there with him and chris is like oh well this is you know my friend simon rex who's super famous in certain circles and the woman is like oh yeah hi hi how are you and like back to like chris hi oh wow wow, how are you doing and simon and uh simon and chris leave in the and simon's like dude that is so fucking cool what you get to do like people who listen to your thing like you for you and the, the and i've seen it man like chris has a great audience with his show tangentially speaking and he has these meetups He did one in Santa Cruz where he just posts on Twitter and Instagram, hey, I'm going to be at this bar. Come hang out. I'd love to meet all of you. And it's like 30 to 50 awesome people in a bar. Dude,
2: I only did his podcast once and I have two lifelong friends. Like when I do podcasts and I get fan mail, it's like, that's fan mail. That's it. Two friends. deeply I care about them uh two women who heard me on that podcast
0: well uh, the reason for that is that Chris takes people into very deep psychological places and yeah. if you're too uncomfortable to go there with him you're gonna bounce you're gonna be out and I'm sure that there are a lot of people that have listened to one of his episodes and are like ah eh, not for me but the people are who are willing to stand in that fire at certain points yeah. and like really look at themselves honestly and, and and Chris's show is also just super funny and and you know, he goes all over the place, but it's for people who can also go all over the place, people who are interested in more than just that one thing. And that's that's a special kind of notoriety that I don't think many people have been able to experience before podcasting, because before that, it was like, oh, my gosh, I love that movie where you played that totally different person. Right. Get a sound. And selfie you're like, now. well, that was a character that a writer came up with and a director told me to play i guess i acted the emotions but you have no idea who i am and most likely neither do i
2: yeah i've never i've never had people come up and just want a selfie and bounce i've anyone who's recognized me back in the day it was so funny i would always take my parents when they came to new york to vegan restaurants and i would always get recognized but i had to explain to them like this is the only place I will be recognized. I would never recognize, you know, anytime I was with one of my like rock star buddies, it's like, they get recognized everywhere. I'm like, I'm very niche famous. And now like, it probably wouldn't be great if I went into a vegan restaurant and was recognized. Uh, but Chris, I'm so glad I get to say this like publicly to like one of his friends. Cause I haven't talked to Chris in forever, but like when I did Rogan's podcast and talked about my stuff, I mean, dude, again, I know we kind of like brushed by it casually and like even talking about it, I like was, looking down and it's, it's always, it's always so weird. Like I had such shame where when I was like dating app dating in LA, I would like on, on first dates, on so many first dates, if they were going well, I was like, I need to tell this girl about what happened before we like hook up. And I would like sit them down and be like, there's something you need to know about me. And I would give a very long, dramatic story, including details that the people who know are like, oh, you kind of got dicked over there. Um, and then I would finish my like 15 minute sad sack. And every girl was like, Why'd you t- you didn't need to tell me that? Like they were like, I thought you were gonna tell me you like were accused of like assault or something like terrible. And so that was the level of shame that I was carrying for a very long time. When I did Rogan's podcast, you know, it's Rogan's podcast. So half the people that write you will be like, yo, man, really cool to have you back in comedy. Like, sorry about what happened piece. And then the other half are like, you fucking piece of shit. And they're just monsters. Right. Um, when I did Chris's podcast, and I think this is why I became so close with these two women, the people who reached out, like sincerely made me feel for the first time in a long time. And I was suicidal a lot. Um, I mean, Robin was probably the only reason I didn't kill myself. Um, and why? well, he was the one who, won, like, convinced me not to quit comedy, and we would talk on the phone about my depression, which is darkly hilarious when the person who helps you with your depression kills himself. We were like, well, I'm fucked. Um, but I remember how much pain that caused me, because he was the first person in my life that, um, that uh, killed himself, and... It hurt me so much, and I wasn't even the person in his life that was, like, the closest to him. We would talk on the phone, and we would hang out in fucking Marin um, and do shows, but, like, let alone his family, let alone whatever, and, like, I had never felt so fucking sick when I found out, Um, and still, I mean, there are times whenever I get in trouble, I start automatically going to, like, text him or email him, and uh, and then I just forget. Like, it just fucking rocked me so hard. And I just don't want to do that to anybody. I'm kind of like, I'd rather suffer, (laughs) uh, talk openly about my shit and then maybe help other people. I also feel like I have gotten so many emails from kids who didn't commit suicide because of the podcast or my stand or anything. Uh, what I do that if I off myself, I'm kind of like, Oh, does that kind of take away? And I don't know the answer, but does that take away me helping? I don't know, the thought of someone being like, well, fucking the guy who convinced me not to kill himself killed himself, so I'm going to do it. Like, that's like, that's a lot. And maybe that's just me holding myself up higher uh, than I, I actually should. But if that's what stops me from killing myself, then fuck it. But then, you know, psychedelics, we're all one. Universe is beautiful. I'm probably good for a while.
0: What was the point we were trying to make there?
2: Don't remember. Chris Ryan. Uh, so his show, yeah, those people, the those girls really made me feel like I'm not a monster, and that I'm okay, and that I don't need to walk around with such fucking shame and and shit like that. And I don't think I would have gotten on a healthy
1: path
2: if it wasn't for Chris's show. And then also, a lot of the shows I did, again, were more conservative. And having someone like Chris and like the women who, especially the women who listen to his show, be like, "Oh no, we're still like hella liberal." And what happened to you was fucked up as opposed to what happened to you was fucked up. Oh, cool. Thanks. Why? Because women are whores. And you're like, yeah, I don't want you on my team. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, Chris also, you know, he has an audience that's not primarily political. So he travels the world. He you know, talks about different ways for people to relate sexually. He talks about way more than that. But then politics are kind of a part of that but it's only a representation of a prior belief you know around empathy or self-reliance or you know ability to live a good life and you know climb the social ladder like the issues are second to that and i think the audience follows him
2: yeah i think that's where i'm at i think I can tell. I can tell. You're
0: like, you're like, I am not my politics.
2: Yeah. Well, but I also, I like that you use the word empathy. Uh, I believe in the politics of empathy where, yeah, I kept distancing myself so hard from politics. Again, those boxes, right? If I don't have a political show, then fuck politics. Um, But then the way me and you had a conversation about things that I find very important, I was like, Oh, I still care about these things. Um, But yeah, I think instead of describing myself or putting myself in a political box, it's just, yeah, just fucking, just like jujitsu, just like art, just follow your heart. Where it's like, I want to help people. Like yeah. that's it. Whether it's with mental health or politics or jujitsu or comedy or or whatever. And I think you do the same thing, you know, whether it's with surfing or the environment or the podcast. Um,
0: I think Psychedelics and the environment and empathy, I think, are all in the same circle, but very rarely get put in those same circles. Like a lot of people don't know that the environmental movement of the 60s was largely spurred by the psychedelic movement. Yeah. Um, uh, The environmental movement. Even um, like one story I love to tell is uh, the whole earth catalog from Stuart Brand. So Stuart Brand was this 20 something year old kid who took LSD on this rooftop in San Francisco in uh, 1960. I forget the exact year, but he had this idea that the the basis of humanity's ills was that they couldn't see themselves from outer space they couldn't see this Tiny, fragile jewel that was suspended in vast Holy vacuum shit. space, and if they and yeah. if they could see that photo, it would change a lot of their behavior. So he went to Berkeley, and he went with it was this like top hat and um, like golden star that he was wearing, and he had this protest sign that said, "Why haven't they shown us a photo of the whole Earth?" Oh and then the gosh. San Francisco Chronicle reported on it, and it became this huge story. And then a year later. NASA turned the cameras around and showed us the first photo of the whole earth, which became the symbol of the environmental movement. Um, And I, and a lot of people in the, a lot of environmentalists are, are kind of terrified to even talk about psychedelics. I think it's changing a lot because of Michael Pollan's book, Mm -hmm. but most of them, most people who have committed their lives to our planet have had some deep psychedelic experience that has spurred them forward. Because if you're going to get engaged in that issue, you're going to lose a lot. Like you're, environmentalists are maybe the only group that bomb more than comedians.
2: <laughs> That's a great fucking line. That's a great line. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I'm vegan is, you know, I, I, I stopped being vegan for a while. After all this shit happened and I just like checked out and then uh, I went back to being vegan when my cat died because I started, you know, just like I was like petting everyone's dog like in my neighborhood and just realized how much I love animals. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking eat animals. So I went back to being vegan. And one of the things that I really like about it is that, yeah, when you're thrown into the political world, you feel like you're constantly losing. And by making the choice to not eat animals, I'm like, oh, every day I'm kind of – I have an empathetic win. You know what I mean? Like I'm actually saving an animal. I'm doing something, which feels really good. With that said, where I was going with that – wasn't a preachy vegan thing. Where I was going with that is
0: even – I want to when- talk about this though. I, I want to get into uh, the politics of eating meat because as a hunter, I think they will have a fruitful conversation.
2: A hundred percent. So I – even when I was a loud self righteous vegan, I did not give a shit about the environment or even animals I saw as much as since I've done psychedelics. Where it's funny that there isn't more of a connection uh, because the cliche is you start tripping and you're hugging trees or bending down and whatever. But I mean, it's been since February. So, you know, a, a, a decent amount of months and this morning every walk i take i see a rabbit like i'm getting down on my knees and i'm stopping to look at the rabbit um or even i went on this hike the other day and this fly kept bothering me and i was like <laughs> i i even told friends but i was like what if the fly was like like my cat's name was named after the rapper, Talib Kwali. So Talib Kitty. Uh, I was like, well, <laughs> little, like, little, like, reincarnated Talib. And that's why it's like not leaving me alone th- or whatever. Like, there are these silly thoughts, but it just made me be like, oh, I was not going to like. Fucking swatted it. And yeah, I'm looking at plants and, and pollen it says a lot of people have, have have felt this way, where I'm looking at plants and flowers for the first time differently. Like it's easy to look up at like the mountains right to the left of me because they're dope and huge. But I'm like stopping to see like little tiny flowers and like cactuses. And I'm like, oh. And the other day I saw a bulldozer down by where I see all the rabbits. And I felt this like my chest tightened where I'm like, what's the fucking plan, guys? Like, what's going on here? Like, this is the fucking rabbit's home. This is where they live. And yeah, like, I feel so much more connected. And, you know, I mean, my brother became a vegetarian. My brother was very anti vegetarian, but strictly because of factory farming, where he's like, I talk so much about fucking climate change that if I'm supporting factory farming, he's like, I'm being a fucking hypocrite. And so. And again, this goes back to, I'm sure what you want to talk about, but what me and Rob talked about, where it's like, hey, yeah, man, we got to figure out a way for more sustainable meat and not to be supporting these disgusting farms, these like torture farms.
0: Yeah. Well, ironically, I started caring a lot more about animals as soon as I started hunting them.
2: That's so interesting.
0: Oh, I started noticing them. Like you you, you all of a sudden have these incentives to notice how ecosystems operate. and. Right. And you gain that visceral experience of shooting an animal and cutting it open and then eating the meat and sharing the meat. And I, I think that um, – like I don't actually think that a hunt is over until you share that meat with someone. I it's love a, that. And it's a very – like the whole experience is so intensely personal and it's so ba- – so – It just forces so much responsibility over your actions. And we don't have that nearly as much as we used to, you know, in the old days, like if you did something really stupid, it might get you killed. Now. Um, I mean, currently if you do something really stupid, it could get you killed in the sense that we're in a pandemic, but a lot of, um, our decisions were, um, you know, they didn't have real consequences and I think that for me, like there is the environmental impact, but what keeps me coming back, like I, I go up and, and turkey hunt. Like for the last couple of weeks, I go up into the Santa Cruz Mountains, and this morning I was up at five a.m. sitting in the redwoods, dead silent, with this little thing called a strut commander. So you uh, you you kind of purr this little stick against this graphite, and it makes the sound of a female turkey, and go. Rah! and then if you get a male to come in he'll he'll go and you can actually get a turkey to come in by this call and response
2: women always begin men in trouble am i
0: right (laughs) yeah But 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 you know this morning i didn't hear any turkeys but i heard an owl i heard a woodpecker uh i saw a few rabbits go by and I never would have noticed any of those animals. If I was just on a hike, I needed the incentive to try and be as quiet as possible. And the amount of benefits that have come into my life, like from that, you know, responsibility, seeing where my meat comes from, um, to being able to share it with my friends. Like, that's why I do it. And then the fact that it's also good for the environment, um, is a tertiary benefit of that. But I also am not kidding myself in the, in that, like, I do think that I still make a lot of my decisions selfishly and I make my decisions based off of how it makes me feel as a person and, and the identity that I want to move into. Um, And that's also, you know, it's, it also is, is good that it tends to make the the world better, but I don't know.
2: So quick, very, very quick story and then a question for you. So quick story is, yeah, I mean, old me would have just been yelling at you. And it's like, you can't say you like animals if you're fucking killing animals. Like all done. Like no conversation. Um, and that's how I used to feel. And every time Rogan would have some fucking hunter on, I'd be like, ugh. Cause like, I mean, ever since I was a kid, if there was a dead squirrel in the middle of the road when I was walking to school, I would walk like a mile out of the way to not see it. Like I've just had this like visceral reaction when I've seen like a dead animal still to this day. Um, The first day I was with some girl that I was dating when I uh decided to start eating meat again. And we went to a sushi restaurant and I was like, I'm gonna get like a lobster or something. And they brought out the whole, I thought it was just gonna be like a roll and they brought out the whole lobster. And I was like, I can't fucking even look at this. I covered it in a napkin. Like I was giving him this little like fucking sad funeral. And I was like, just take him back. Like I still, anyway, I listened to Cameron Haynes, Haynes, Haste? Yeah. Uh, on Rogan, when I was eating meat, because I'm like, I guess I can fucking listen to a hunter. And one, he sounded like a really cool guy. But that was sort of the first glimpse of me wanting to be a vegetarian again. Where him and Joe, it was so beautiful. Be a vegetarian
0: again, or, or eat meat again?
2: No, to actually, I thought about being vegetarian again when I heard it because, and that's when I was, you know, I was doing all my grass fed shit, blah blah blah. But they were describing uh, the kill. And they were actually speaking with more emotion than I've heard some obnoxious vegans speak about. Like, I think one of them might've even teared up and it was so fucking beautiful. It was so beautiful. And uh, so my question to you though, is, you know, people always say, I've heard vegans say this, and I've, I've probably heard hunters say this too, where they go, if people had to hunt their food, Um, they, we would have more vegetarians. And the one vegan book, because there are some obnoxious privileged ass vegans out there. The one book I used to recommend to people was this book by Jonathan Safran Four, who's a fiction writer. He's a literature writer uh, called Eating Animals. So it was very beautifully written, but it also opens up so empathetically and compassionately towards meat eaters, talking about how like, look, food is so important to us. We go to food when we're celebrating, when we're commiserating. There's a tradition around it. And he even interviews like a farmer who... Raises the animals and kills them themselves. And he's like, pro that. What he says though, however, is that 99% of the food we get at stores or, or meat, sorry, we get at stores or restaurants are from factory farms. So if you're hunting, if you're only getting this grass fed stuff, like, cool, cool, cool. But if you really care about the environment, you should maybe, when you go out to whatever shitty restaurant, try to find the vegetarian options, unless it's like a belt campo, uh or whatever that LA place is, uh, with like good meat. And so, but do you think that's true? Do you think because I know I even thought about it. I'm like, all right, if Rogan asked me to go hunting, would I go with him? And I don't know if I could. Um, but do you think that if that was more of an option for people, like I would so much rather people hunt their meat than support factory farms? Um, do you think that most people would be too squeamish and wouldn't do it and they'd just rather not know where their meat comes from because I think that's another thing me and you have in common where it's like all right, you want the animals fucking strap on those fucking boots.
0: Yeah, I I think that most people would be into it. Most people that that have the hunting experience, it probably chalk it up as top 10 most influential experiences of their life because of that responsibility. Um, right. I think that I think that we inherently, I think that responsibility is very closely tied to meaning in one's life. Yeah. So by having so many of our decisions, um, not like not us, not being able to see the impact of those. Um, and this was like pretty early on when I started traveling and uh, surfing and noticing all of these like impacts that were ha- that were happening on the environment and, and that we weren't really seeing. Right. It was yeah. like, you don't see, for example, the um, fracking well and where that pipeline goes to Houston, Texas to make the water bottle, the plastic water bottle that then you're going to drink for a second. You see the plastic water bottle, then you see that get thrown away and go on a ship to you know india like you don't you don't see 99% of that life cycle no, you're the, like, the I recycled,
2: so i did the and right I, thing
0: and i think that eating is um is a really similar thing right where you like we yearn to to um have that more close connection with what with what we're doing right so mm-hmm. but but i think that um hunting can provide that self um, that kind of self-effacing experience, but it's, it's definitely not a solution on like a global scale to feed all of the people that we have. I did, however, I wrote an article on, um, lab-grown meat. Which is something that where people can get a stem cell from an animal and they grow it in a kind of meat brewery and, yeah, uh,
2: and Harris has talked about that before,
0: yeah, and I think that that could be a, a major solution. I actually had a scientist from this group called the Good Food Institute on my show, and yeah. uh, he was and what they do is they are working with meat companies to try and to, get, to try and get them to adopt um, lab grown technology.
2: Yeah. I don't trust. I mean, when I was vegan, I was pretty psyched about like the impossible burger and beyond burger and stuff. But like ever since I started eating really clean meat again, and now, you know, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get the best of both worlds where I'm trying to be vegan, but still low carb, stay away from all that process shit. Like as a Someone who doesn't want animals to die, I'm, like, psyched that Beyond Burgers are everywhere. But also, you know, once Burger King starts playing your band, you got to wonder about the music, you know, a little bit where you're like, yee. Um, and I just have this fucking feeling. Like, I know it's like pea protein, but anything that processed, I just want to stay the fuck away
0: from. But it's, so, highly, it's highly processed and also even if you are vegan, depending on where you're um, – where your food is coming from, it's still mass agriculture, right? Which displaces ecosystems. So no one's completely innocent in this. And uh, I think that that's, that's important to The the one
2: thing I will, and I never thought I would agree with a hunter this much, but the one thing I will kind of, and you didn't do it that bad, but call bullshit on for when people say this is whenever people go like, Oh, you're a vegan. Will you eat uh, almonds and almonds are which? Yeah. Like almonds are not, good the way we, uh, the way we get them, uh, agriculturally, you're right. It's not good, but I go, right. But you also eat almonds and you eat meat. Like I hate hate (laughs) people that just want to shit on people who are trying where I'm like, I know I'm not going to be a preachy douchebag about it anymore, but like, I know what I'm doing is doing some good. So I'm going to keep doing it. And it's the same. This happens on Twitter all the time where, uh, let's say a girl is raped, right? As bad as you can get. And you'll have some guy go, yeah, well, what about male rape? Why don't you talk about that? And it's like, do you talk about that? Or do you just bring that up when a woman's raped? And it's like, that guy's not on the front lines trying to stop prison rape. Right.
0: Well, the point there too, is that, if they're being raped by other guys.
2: <laughs> they sure are. They okay. sure are. That's a great point. Yeah, but that happens all the time. It happens with Black Lives Matter. Like, well, what about like white lives? It's like, well, the last time I saw an innocent white kid get shot by the cops, you had nothing to say. And so I I, I don't like trying to shoot down people who are speaking out for like injustice But because you're right. Like, look, all of us have iPhones. All of us, we all contribute to the 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 fucking of the planet. I think the goal is everybody in their own way, you by hunting, me not by, by not eating animals. Um, you know, I could probably learn a ton from you about, uh, recycling and plastics because like, I, I don't part of me, I probably wasn't even recycling when I lived in New York. Cause I'm like, I'm a vegan. I'm doing my fucking part. Like I could learn a lot about that. I think if everyone was just trying to do their best instead of shitting on everyone else and then being like, Hey, what can we learn from each other? Where is their overlap? Um, would just be in a much better fucking situation, but you're not going to get a lot of vegans uh, that talk like that. Um, and right. probably-
0: well, I, I don't think that the solution is, is apathy. And I run in the, into that a lot. Like people talk about like, Oh, you're talking about plastic pollution, but you fly on planes. You fucking hypocrite. It's like, That's yeah, we're, we're all hypocrites on one level or another. We should still try and make good decisions. Th- one, one point that I do need to touch on about hunting that has been Really cool for me to learn about. I'm also newer to this. Like I've been hunting for three years, um, and the fact that that we can shoot blacktail deer and turkey here in Santa Cruz, and I can go drive thirty minutes away and and if I'm lucky, harvest an animal and know exactly where that came from is super cool. Another cool aspect of it, though, is the hunting tag program. Do you know much about this? No. So, when you hunt an animal, you need to buy a tag. And depending on the animal, there's different prices for that tag. And then, that's
2: what, like, how money goes?
0: Yeah. So, that money goes to habitat restoration, it goes to biologists. Um, being able to take stock of the populations that we have and ensure that there's a balance in that ecosystem. And I think that the, and, and mass swaths of wetlands have been saved by this group called Ducks Unlimited that saw wetlands disappearing. They were hunters. They, they had an investment in this resource. So they started, an organization called Ducks Unlimited. There's a membership fee and they've saved a ton of land throughout the United States. Um, it's It's really mind blowing to see That's just right, how successful yeah. this model is um and I do think that that hunting model is much more sustainable than a lot of approaches that environmentalists tend to have where they're they have all the incentives working against them, but they don't have the and they don't have the membership and the money where they can just put it up to protect this land yeah, yeah um, I- and I wish that more more people just knew the impact that hunters have not only in America, but globally, like the black rhino population was on the verge of extinction in Namibia before they allowed hunters to come in and take older post-reproductive males. So these are males that can't reproduce anymore. And a lot of times they kill younger males. Right. So And, and the uh, government of Namibia will charge hunters like Matt Boku bucks. I, I forget exactly the number, but it's like in In the tens of thousands of dollars, if you want to hunt one of these rhinos, and then all of that money goes into protecting them from poachers. So it's, it's a new model that a lot of people, it makes people squeamish because, you know, you're still killing animals and it makes people real squeamish when you're talking about black rhinos. But if you look at the results, it works.
2: Yeah, I love the idea of old curmudgeon rhinos being like, if I don't fuck, nobody fucks. And then they're killing the younger rhinos. So that made me laugh, but I wish that, you know, I don't talk a lot about vegan stuff on my podcast. Um, the last couple of weeks, I've had just some of my favorite musicians and comics and, actors and shit on. Um, but I do have an episode in the bank that I'm probably going to put up next week with this guy named Gene Bauer and he runs Farm Sanctuary. And it's so interesting. And it was the first time I interviewed a vegan from the place of like, hey, let's not lash out at people who eat meat. Let's just like see what we can, you know, I brought up my friendship with Rob Wolf and this dude is like fucking cool, man. I mean, like he started at Greenpeace and like the 60s or some shit. And, uh, and Farm Sanctuary essentially was just him and his friends rescuing these animals that like ran away or were being tortured. And then he just built this huge uh, institution. And he talked about it so wonderfully where they're not... He'll talk about the vegan thing at length when I asked him, but the first half of the conversation probably matches up with you as a hunter, where it's like, yeah, they were saving animals who were going to fucking die. And, um, you know, he, he, he wants to do so much for the environment. And he was up at 5 a.m. running. And it's like, ah, uh, it's so weird that it's like, if you took the best of the animal activists with the best of the hunters. We can actually probably come up with some really like innovative. Uh, oh, a
0: hundred percent, a hundred percent. But then within each of those groups, you have maniacs. angry maniacs. Yeah, yeah you have yeah. angry maniacs that are just there to get angry at each other and, and then um, try and troll each other like hunters that will just post their grip and grin shots of bloody animals. And like, they know that it's a divisive tactic. They know right. that just by posting that it's going to start this shitty debate where no one's going to learn anything, but they're going to feel better about themselves. Like See, fuck, maybe that's those guys.
2: Yeah. Maybe that's what me and you can do. Maybe that's another role. If we're not going to have the great, uh, vegan hunter conference or whatever is like, you get to call out the douchebags on your side. I get to call out the douchebags on my side. So I know, Uh, and this story has never been appropriate to tell. Uh, But uh, I did a jujitsu seminar in Alabama and uh, this homie of mine moved to Alabama to train from Ireland. And he was like, we were talking about dating and he was like, I was on Tinder for a day. And and then I got off and I go, oh, why? And he showed me within the first couple of swipes, three of the women uh, on Tinder, the site where you go to fuck, um, were holding like, deer heads and shit that they hunted like in those poses for their fucking profile picture, bro. Uh, dude, there's d-
0: something so weird about dating apps and women who post photos of themselves with guns
2: with. Yeah. 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 It's such a, like a weird thing. Like,
0: what is it like? I can hang with the boys as well. Yeah. It's like know, for man. that dude who's like, Oh yeah, she's a babe. She's got big tits and she's got an AK.
2: Yeah. True like True romance. Um, which I love, and I actually find a very romantic movie. But you know, that's true, true. romance. Yeah, oh yeah, great film, dude. It's one of my favorite. So underrated, so underrated. The you're so cool, you're so cool on a napkin. One of the most romantic things, uh, although uh, also very violent. I still think the most romantic scene in a movie is in Drive when Ryan Gosling. Uh, kisses her in the elevator and then curb stomps that guy to death uh, in the elevator uh, with like, there's like beautiful music playing. I got a reroute to drive
1: too.
0: Yeah. Well, I, well, yeah, man, I, I think that this, if there is a, a theme to this highly tangential conversation, it's uh, not placating a base and just coming at any subject with as clear of eyes as possible. Yeah, and that is what will, and, yeah, that's what can get you your, your quote unquote success. You know, that's why I, co- I, that's why I, I respect someone like Chris Ryan so much is that again and again, he, he does that. And as a result, he's built a, an audience of people that really trust that he's gonna take every issue honestly. Yeah, and it's and harder to do than you think, man. Because uh, you have so many in, you have so oh, no, many I incentives don't. going against you. You know, it's yeah. So <laughs> You've experienced well, like, this, and and
2: that, um. You know, it, it, it's weird the the political stuff we talked about, the hunter vegan stuff, and the art stuff. It really is kind of the same. It's like lead with love follow your heart instead of thinking about what everyone else is saying or what everyone else is thinking. You know, there was another thing that Rick Rubin said that I loved so much where he said, um, that if he's talking about music and he goes, if everybody likes you, you're probably mediocre. And that, and then he went my favorite part of the quote actually, is he said, uh, he goes, you should be someone's favorite musician. And then someone, the example of what someone else hates in music. And one that gave me total permission as an artist, I feel like to start making weirder shit, which I love, but also it kind of ties in when you brought up Chris, it kind of ties in with politics where I always used to be so frustrated where it's like, well, these people on the right hate me and these people on the left hate me. And, you know, Chris probably gets the same thing. He probably, when he talks about polyamory, he probably has like these people coming after him or, you know, like maybe even some feminists getting mad, but then he'll talk about Trump and then maybe he'll have some conservatives getting mad. And it's like, good, good. That probably means you're being authentic and you're thinking for yourself and you're this idea that, you know, I remember when I wrote a piece for Quillette and even when I went on Rogan, anytime you go on Rogan, the, the, my old crew will call you alt-right. And it's such garbage where, where they'll go, oh, he, he's, he, he's a grifter. That's what they call people. Uh, he's changing his political views. And it's like, no, man, isn't it good to get older and evolve? You know, like you want that. And some of the things I've come back to, you know, I've come back to being vegan. And some of the things I'm like way more nuanced when it comes to guns. I'm way more nuanced when it comes to cancel culture, stuff like that. But that's good. If I still believe the shit I believed when I was eighteen, that means I didn't really grow up much, you know,
0: yeah, you gotta revel in being wrong. I think that the final um uh, point that the, you that uh we hit on our conversation was about learning, and yeah. the people who uh get really good at stuff and keep keep that love close revel in the failure, you they and they revel in being like, holy shit. Wow, yeah. oh, I had that totally wrong. I'm going to make some readjustments now.
2: Well, that's jiu-jitsu. Every, every UFC fighter's origin story isn't like, oh, I saved a woman from a bunch of muggers. It's, you know, BJ Penn saying, I thought I could scrap. I went into the gym. A 17-year-old girl beat the holy shit out of me. And then the next day I signed up, you know, like you show up at jujitsu, jitsu you're a grown-ass man in a white belt. Uh, and you're getting beat up by a bunch of little dudes who look like me, and you could leave and be like, "Fuck that," um, or you could be like, "I want to learn that thing that just kicked the shit out of me," you know, with surfing. You could fucking drown with comedy. You have an indifferent audience staring at you with silence that's louder than booze. It's torture. Um, but then you go, but there's something here, and I want to get better, and you just chip away and chip away and chip away. That's
0: it. Jamie Kilstein. We've Thank been going you, for two hours, dude. This was such a blast.
2: That was crazy. Uh can I uh plug my shit? Absolutely. Sweet. Uh the short one, if there happen to be any jujitsu people, Rear Naked Radio, we're turning into the biggest jujitsu uh podcast out there. My podcast is uh Jamie Kilstein Podcast, uh iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or you can just go to Jamie Kilstein Podcast dot com and all the links are there and then uh what i'm really trying to build up uh because my Twitter's all verified and looks cool and i hate it it's a fucking cesspool so please follow me on instagram uh, which is at the Jamie Kilstein. I talk a lot about mental health and the stories and stuff. Uh, and then I make weird videos and I'm probably gonna start uh posting since tour's not coming up, I was gonna record an album, but now I'm like, eh, I'll just start posting the material. Um so I'll be posting like music and comedy and shit like that over there too.
0: Yeah, I, I recommend your Instagram account. I was laughing my ass off at your Edward Snowden love song that you wrote
2: what's so funny is uh me and moby's drummer i have a studio version of like for real i have a studio version of that that is like it's not mellow it's like a pop punk love song to edward snowden with like an eight minute like stoned out jam in the middle um and uh yeah i've been doing more music podcasts so i'm like ah, i'm gonna start posting some some weird shit
0: Radical, thank, man thank you that's our show. I'm going to play out this song called Fuck Your Denim by Pinstripe Love Seat. These guys listened to the podcast, and they sent me this music. You can check out more of their tunes in the description below. And if you're a musician, you can email your music to info at kyle.surf. And I would love, love, love to play it. I'd also love to get those voice, voice memos from you. So bust out your phone. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from. Keep it under a minute, some details about your life. And I would love to learn about you, and so would everyone else listening. All right, that's it for now. Don't forget we got the box of goodies, so you can head over to my website, kyle.surf. That's also where you can sign up for my newsletter. I'm just selling you, left and right, selling you on all the things. But you know what? I'm a hustler, baby. So you can head over to kyle.surf and get your box of goodies this month, July. It's the war of art. That's it for now. Get out in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to. Be that a lake, river, ocean, or fountain, scrub yourself off. we will make your day. See you soon.